0: Good evening church, or whatever time it is that you are listening to this. I just want to inform you that the audio that you are listening to for the sermon, The Quiet Riot, unfortunately became distorted for the first 20 minutes of the sermon, and so you missed the first 20 minutes of the sermon as you listen to this audio file. However, I think you will be blessed as you hear it as the Lord will uh, do His work in the preaching of His Word. And so again, thank you for listening to this. We do apologize that the first 20 minutes or so uh, did get cut off, but uh, there's still roughly about 45 minutes left of the sermon, and uh, trust that it will be used by God for His purposes. Have a great day, and I uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Please enjoy the sermon now. Together ...in order that he would be able to warn them of something is on account that their business is being infected or, or disrupted by the work that the Apostle Paul himself is doing. He says in verse 26, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This was a big, big... Big, big problem for the people of Ephesus. Their gods, in which they worshiped, especially Artemis, who was their uh, chief god or goddess in their land, she pervaded all aspects of the Ephesian society and its culture. She brought money to the culture, she also brought influence to the culture and its political uh, gain, and she also was an idol in which they worshiped. She was a false god in which they worshiped and had been worshiping for centuries. For a very, very long time, Ephesus had been known as the place in which the goddess Artemis was residing in. And so, as Paul is preaching the gospel here, and lives are being transformed, individuals' hearts are being changed to realize that they are called to worship the one true God and not these things in which are made by hands, these things in which people themselves have created and can destroy if they would choose to do that. He is leading these people away from the worldliness of these, this city of Ephesus. And so this is a big, Big, big problem for the people here, especially these men. They worshipped the goddess Artemis. Or if you're using the King James, you'll note that it says Diana. Artemis is just the Greek name for this goddess. Diana would be the Roman name uh, or the Latin name for the goddess. Same, same idea. And so if you're saying, well, I'm reading the King James, it says Diana. It doesn't say Artemis. Well, it's just the same name, just translated a little bit differently. Now, in uh, history, there are a couple of different Artemises. Artemis was a goddess. Uh, she was a female goddess. But in her different context, there or different regions in which she showed up in, she often was depicted a little bit differently. In Rome, the goddess Artemis, or Diana as they called her, was the beautiful virgin goddess. But in Ephesus, she was a little bit different from that. In Ephesus, you had Artemis of the Ephesians, who was the multi-breasted god of fertility. I actually saw a sculpture of what she looked like that's in a museum, and I saw a picture of it, and she is really a fascinating-looking creature uh, as they have created her. She has what is... Uh, to be seen on her torso these 25 breast-like sculptures or mounds on her. And on top of that, as you look at her uh, lower torso, what she has on her is a bunch of different animals. She's guarded by these lions, and then there's a deer, and then there's a tiger, and then I think there's even a rooster. It's hard to make out. She has all of these different pictures on her, but this is who they worship here. She is the individual who is the multi-breasted god of fertility there. She's a very strange-looking goddess indeed, but this is what the people have created and this is what they are worshiping. It's actually interesting. If you look forward in verse 35, it says um, about her uh, that... um it says that Ephesians, that the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. What we believe happened, and this is a tradition, we don't know anything further than this, is that there was a meteor or something that fell from the sky or a rock that maybe they found, which they said fell from the sky, and it was really lumpy and had all of these things. So they said, this is the goddess Artemis. Now, they refined that rock over the time, but initially they got this idea that Artemis was a god that they needed to worship because there was a rock that fell from the sky and it had a bunch of lumps all over it, and so therefore, uh, they decided to worship it. The, the foolishness of idolatry knows no bounds, especially with that. Well, nevertheless, as you look at these people as they are being uh, showing their motivations, their love for money, their love for also the uh, idolatry that they had, and also their love for the national or the political gain in which they were seeking, to, which they would have lost if Artemis would have been deposed from her place. We can note that this was going to be a big, big problem for these people because, on top of their worship of her in Ephesus, Artemis had a temple that was constructed for her. By the people, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was beautiful. It was a massive piece of architecture. It was 220 feet by 425 feet in, uh, in, in size. And also, scattered all throughout it was 125 pillars that towered about 50 feet high, each individually stacked around this building. It was a tremendously, tremendously beautiful building. They had spent a lot of money on it, and it also earned them a great deal of money because Because people from all over the Roman Empire would come to Ephesus during the year—I think it was in May—and they would worship Artemis there together collectively, and they would transfer, uh, they would uh, uh, go into the the uh, temple, and they would give their worship to Artemis and do all their sorts of things that they would do with this goddess. Well, now you have Paul here proclaiming the utter worthlessness of these idols, and what's happening is it's taking effect. People are being saved and they are getting rid of their idols. Notice that we'll look at it in a couple of weeks. Paul's not telling them they need to get rid of their idols. He's not destroying these idols. He is just simply proclaiming the gospel, and when this transformation happens in their life where they are no longer led by the spirit of the age or by the worldly thinking in which they once were led by, they just get rid of their idols, and they stop spending money on these idols, and this becomes a big problem for these individuals because worship of Artemis pervaded all aspects of Ephesian society. And you can imagine that those who are in the world are not going to give up their worldliness or their culture or tradition or whatever you want to call it. They're not going to give these up very easily. They are going to oppose the worldliness, or they are going to oppose the godliness which is pervading all aspects of Ephesian society. And how are they going to oppose it? Well, worldliness is going to come onto display. Well, now, in the first sense, then, worldliness is shown in their love for money. It is their love for money which leads them to oppose the work that God himself is doing amongst his people here in Ephesus. Coming back to verse 24, it says, Demetrius was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Now, again, Artemis is the goddess of these people. Demetrius is a silversmith. He makes these little figurines of this Artemis, and he sells them, and this is big, big business for them. We read in verse 24, it said it brought no little business to the craftsmen, and later he says this. This is where we get our wealth from. This term wealth not a little bit of money a lot of money. These people were well off because of this business that they had. And so Demetrius, you know, he's taking account of his idols that he has made up for Artemis. You know, he makes them in, uh, they have, you know, sort of a, uh, a smaller size one which you can bring to your home and you can worship Artemis there. They probably have some larger sizes for the more wealthy individuals. They have these little silver ones where you can wear around your neck as an amulet which will protect you as the goddess Artemis is going to protect you as you're wearing her around your neck. And they still made some that you could offer up to her temple. which, you know, you buy it, you place it in the temple, and what actually ended up happening is when they got too many, the priests would just take those goddesses, they'd melt the silver down for the scrap, and then they just repeat the process over and over and over again. Well, this is what this man Demetrius does, and he is probably a guild leader, or in our day, a union leader of the craftsmen in his town. And he's saying, guys, I've been checking my books, and you know, I've been looking at my inventory, and I've got way too many Artemises than I should have normally around this time of the year. It's probably around the year... uh, Around the time of May, which is when the uh, uh, goddess worship of Artemis, which would have taken full uh, stage in Ephesus, as, as I mentioned, people would come from all over the Roman Empire to worship her there, and they'd pay all this money for these crafts and other things that were made, and so Demetrius is like, this is, this is not happening in the way in which it should be happening here. Our books are lower, uh, you know, we don't got any money, I, I've lost our wealth, you know, something is happening, and something needs to be done on account of what Paul himself is doing, because Paul's the prophet. You know, he's preaching these things saying that our idols are worthless. He's saying, you know, these things that we make with our hands, which we end up melting down later to just remake with our hands again, these things are worthless. Well, well, duh, they're worthless. you made them. What do you have? You can't make anything lasting. You can't make anything worthwhile. And yet, yet he just says, man, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. Now, what the problem is here is that they are finding themselves on the route of bankruptcy. Really, they have no money left because the people are just not—they're not buying anything any longer. And as we know, worldliness often uh, shows itself in love for money. In this love for money, individuals will do anything that they can in order to receive what is theirs. You know, there's this idea that you see it oftentimes. I've watched this uh, television show called uh, First 48 where it uh, covers murders throughout the world or throughout uh, uh, the localized United States, and people are often killed for like $20. Individuals are just killed because this love of money, this idea, this is mine, you can't have it, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, just pervades the sinful desires of the flesh, and so this is what is happening here. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 tells us this, and this must be uh, very important for us to consider in the fact that money itself is not evil. Uh, money itself is not sin. In fact, God gives money in order that we will be able to use it for His purposes. Money in and of itself is not sin. Being rich in and of itself is not sinful. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of of evils. As we will see here, their love for money will lead them to start a riot against the church as they are in Ephesus. They look for Paul. They don't find him, but they find two other believers. Their love for money leads them to really bring about a lynching party for the Christians in that society in which they live. But not only that, their worldly motivations also consist in their love for idols. And our love for idols, that is, things in which men create to take place uh, of the one true and only God who has created all things, even the individuals who themselves are creating these false gods. These individuals have this idolatry in which they will not give up. They will not give up these images in which they choose to worship. And in our day, while we don't often see idol idol worship in our society in which we live in here in America, culturally speaking, everyone has something in which they are refusing to give up for God. They're refusing to give it up. No, this is mine. You know, God, mind your business. This is mine. I'm not getting rid of it. You need to just go and, you know, figure out something else to do during this time. It's, that, it's this idea that says, I don't need God. God, I don't want you. God, get out of my life. I am going to worship this thing. And these people had these idols. They had these idols. And, you know, what are you to make of an idol? What are we to think about when we think of idols? You know, we often say, well, oh, what, what's an idol? Who cares? Who cares about an idol? Well, what does God make of these idols? What does God think of these idols when He sees His people making them or sees individuals who are His creation making them? Jeremiah 16, verse 20 says, Can man make for himself gods? And the answer obviously is yes, but the response is, Such are not gods. And so not only is worldliness pervaded in uh, showing itself not only through the love for money, but also in the total absencing oneself from the worship of the one true God. This idolatry, individuals making images of things in which they worship which are not God, nor can they be God because God alone is God and there is no one like Him. Now, the concern for these people here is made clear in verse 27. Their worldliness, we could say. He says there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, meaning we're not going to have any money anymore, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. There's this problem here. They're saying this God that Paul is proclaiming, you know, he's overtaking the the, uh, superiority that the goddess Artemis has. How is this right? We need to do something about this. We can't have this taking place. We can't have the God of Paul overtaking Artemis here. She's the great and mighty Artemis of the Ephesians. We cannot allow for this to happen. How many times do individuals set up things in this world in order that it can prevent individuals from knowing the one true God? How many times are people unwilling to get rid of something in their life saying, oh, well, I just won't get rid of this, and it often disrupts this individual from having a right relationship with god one thing that's kind of ironic here about this idolatrous worship that they have here is it's i think it's funny that you know they're so concerned about artemis being deposed from her magnificence but in this whole account artemis does nothing if artemis was such a mighty god don't you think that she would have upheld her glory here and you know struck down paul and and the rest of the church herself she does nothing and she can't do anything because she isn't nothing she's made up she doesn't exist She knows nothing of what is happening here because she is a figment of these individuals' imaginations. Yet, even though this is the case, the people don't see it that way. The people don't see it that way. The worldliness that they have blinds them to the beauty and glory of the one and only God and causes them to place their hope, their joy, their trust, and livelihood in a lifeless statue which they themselves have created. And so worldliness is both love for money, love for idolatry, but finally, worldliness is also shown in their national and social pride, which leads them to oppose the work that God himself is doing amongst his church there. So on top of them losing their money, which we read in verse 27, their trade will come into disrepute. On top of the fact that the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and she may be deposed from her magnificence, also they remark on this fact that she is whom all Asia and the world worship. They're saying, not only does this affect our pocketbooks, not only does this affect our God Artemis, but it also affects our standing within our world that we live in. The whole world worships Artemis, as they are saying here. Now, this is probably an exaggeration. We do know that Artemis worship did become quite main, uh, uh, widespread, but still, they're saying, nationally speaking, they're going to take away our God. We can't have this happening here. People know us as being the Ephesians, the Ephesians who have the great goddess Artemis here. We're the temple keeper of Artemis here. And if Artemis loses her value in the society, no one's going to come to Ephesus any longer. People are going to hate our society because we have nothing to offer to them any longer. Now, I'm not saying that it is worldly to be patriotic here. That's not what I'm saying here. Don't mistake me for that. But there is some sense in which patriotism replaces or overtakes one's devotion to God. It causes for an individual to do things in which they would not have done, but because of their great love for the worldliness of this world, they forget, especially believers, forget that they are citizens of heaven. And so you have, in one sense, which we've seen in our society here in the United States, individuals reacting to the tyranny in which they see in the governmental systems that we have here in the United States. And because they see this as tyranny, their desire for the, which really is just their desire for the American way, they see that being taken away. Their desire for the American way supersedes God's will and His ways, and they often do things that are totally unbiblical. They riot against the government in a way in which is totally unbiblical. Now, here in Ephesus, if the Artemis worship is on to decline. If it affects the economy, religious life, and the political and social life of the city, this is going to be a big, big problem for these individuals. We see their motivation for their things in which they perceive to have great value in their lives being wrapped up in these things. And what we're going to see in just a few moments is that this worldly motivation is going to lead into a worldly behavior that causes a riot that cannot be stopped. They're just going nuts. They go crazy, and that's always what happens when individuals do not get their way and their worldliness pervades their their minds. They always act in an irrational way, and its behavior is shown to us beginning at verse 28. But before we consider that, I want us to say something here. You know, this idea that that these Ephesians have about their Artemis God here, they're saying, you know, if Paul's God overtakes the authority of Artemis here, it's going to make her nothing going to make her worthless. We need to stand up for our goddess here. We need to do this for our goddess here because she's going to be deposed from her magnificence. This is worldly thinking at its finest. Why? Because it totally absences the fact that there is only one true God. There's one true God who has created all things. These people are worried about Artemis losing her significance because they have created her. They've created this goddess, and so they don't want her to lose her significance. On the contrary, for us as believers, if we are to think biblically about God, even if we were the last church, local church, ever, ever to exist right here in the earth, if some 50 of us or 25 of us, however many of us, if we were the last people on earth to worship God, and the rest of the world began to worship Artemis again, or the Muslim God, or or whomever, whatever God that you want to pick, it would not change for a single second how truly miraculous and powerful and awesome and mighty that our great God is. It wouldn't change anything about God. Even as we see the American society drifting away from God and and the Christian church on the decline in America especially, it doesn't change anything about God. We don't have to revolt and say, you're taking away my God. God is still God. We don't need to riot against the ungodliness that we see happening in our day. We don't need to beat people into submission, which is what they used to do. Rather, we need to preach the gospel, and allow the Spirit of God to do His transformative work. We don't need to become overwhelmed by the ungodliness that we see in our society. As these Ephesians would do, they try to beat Paul and beat the rest of the church into submission to go back to the ways in which they want them to do things, which is worldly in and of itself. The church doesn't need to do that because God, even if if it's just us worshiping Him, He is never going to be deposed from His magnificence because He alone is the all-powerful God church if we think about it eight people eight people worshiped god in noah's days out of all of the world eight people ended up on that ark and now people would say well the majority is probably right here you know noah's he's in the he's in the minority no one cares about his god what happened to the people What happened to the people in Noah's days? Did the fact that only eight people worship God diminish His power? No. Contrary to what the world thinks concerning their gods, our God does not get His power from us, nor does His name continue because of us. God is not dependent upon His creation for anything. He alone is God. Worldly thinking does not have to get into our system. Our worldview does not have to change if we become lesser in the society in which we live in. We're not of this world. We are separated from the world, and so whatever happens, we don't need to respond as the Ephesians would do here. But still also, I want us to say one other thing about the motivations to worldliness. You say, what am I to think about in terms of the money in which I have? How should I, as a believer, see the money or the resources in which God himself has given to me? How can I ensure that the love for money does not lead for me to live a worldly type of lifestyle? Well, First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 to 19, gives us the right attitude towards money. It says, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Ultimately, he says, Our money is not ours. It's given to us by God to steward. Let us be faithful with what God has given to us in order that it would bring Him glory and it would also help individuals who are in more need than us. Well, now, worldly motivation then is seen in these three characteristics love for money, love for idols and also social and national pride, which are in opposition to God and His ways. The second question that we must ask ourselves is, what happens when the worldliness takes over these individuals? What does their behavior look like? What is the behavior of someone who is worldly, who who is love for their money or their their love for their nation or their, their love for their socioeconomic status? What happens to an individual whose worldliness overtakes them? Well, we see it in the activity of the world here in verse 28 to verse 34. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristochus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. They recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! What do you see here? What's the activity? What's the behavior of the world here? It is riotous, rebellious confusion. They don't know what is going on. They are totally out of control. They have no control over their beings, they are out for blood. It is a lynching party that is going to take place here. They're dragging uh, Aristarchus and Gaius with them because they can't find Paul and they're yanking them over into the theater and they're going to kill them right then and there because they can't stand that their worldliness is on attack from the godliness of the church that is found there in this town of Ephesus. They say if we're not going to have our way, if Artemis worship is going to be no longer, then you're not going to have your way either. We're going to stomp it out once and for all. Now some people who are trying to be compassionate towards the world in this sense to try to say you know well you know she'd expect him to do this here they say well these people what we see happening is merely passion passion for their god passion for their money, passion for their nation, passion for their society here. Passion can often be confused with a riot. Passion can often be confused with someone becoming totally out of control to the point where they themselves are rioting. This is not passion. This is anger. This is sin. This is the response that sin always has to the effect of God at work in the midst of the society in which God himself is working here. This is what is happening here. Sin is dissolving this city into chaos. Worldliness is bringing this world, this city of Ephesus, to complete and total confusion. See, what's happening here is Demetrius, he's gathered up his, his guild of craftsmen. He's got all of his brothers with him. And they're you know, going down the street, main street, shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And as often happens, you got a crowd and people yelling. People are going to peek out their door to say, well, What's going on here? So they're shouting it as they're walking over to the theater. Another person peeps out their door, what's going on here? Oh, they're talking about Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, we should go over there. And so they join and they start shouting this and they're raising their fist and pumping their fist and spitting and doing all sorts of things that people do when they go crazy in this society that we live in. They are rioting. They're planning on having a lynching party for the Christians here. And so they continue to march down Main Street there and they get Gaius and they get Aristarchus, two believers, friends of Paul, and they yank them out of their Homes or wherever they are, and they start dragging them into the theater so that they can stay, they make them stand trial for the work that they have done in opposing the worldliness of these individuals here. These men, Demetrius and his craftspeople, are stirring up the crowd to create a riot, a riot that is going to lead this town of Ephesus to overcome the work that God Himself is doing. Now, this is generally true. If you look at any riot or any mob mentality, this is how it always looks. It starts with a couple people getting really angry. They start shouting. They make their voice really big. A number of other people come, and then they get this large number, and so they become very intimidating, and you're supposed to be scared of them, and you're supposed to run away from them and hide from them. It's always mob mentality, always by intimidation in which they seek to subvert their will on individuals. When there is a crowd, you will have people who will follow them. They'll be screaming. They're hollering. Other people are joining them. This is a full-fledged protest that is happening here in this town of Ephesus. And we can see the severity of it in that in verse 30 and also in verse 31. Paul himself didn't get caught up in this protest. Paul himself was somewhere else at this time. We don't know where exactly. He was in Ephesus at some somewhere, someplace, and he got news that Gaius and Aristarchus, his two friends, his traveling companions, had been snatched up by this lynching party, by this protest that was happening. And so Paul is like, I need to go stand with my brothers here. I'm not going to let them be opposed when, when I am the one who is, you know, the leader of the church. I'm not going to let my sheep become scattered as he is, you know, the under-shepherd to the chief shepherd in his church, and so he wants to go to them. But what happens is, we read in verse 30, it says but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. His other brothers and sisters in the Lord said, Paul, you can't get involved with this here. You know, there's thousands of thousands of people here. They're out for blood. If you go in there right now, they're going to kill you. They are going to rip you to pieces. You're not going to live any longer. We need you here in the church. And so the believers are holding Paul back. And on top of that, some of the, Paul's friends within the Roman government, the Asiarchs in verse 31, they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into this theater. They realize, they realize they're thinking rationally here and they say this is a bad Bad situation for the apostle Paul to get himself into. These Asiarchs were high ranking government officials that Paul somehow became acquainted with. They cared for his safety, and they say, Paul, stay back. Just let this play out. You do not want to become involved in this. And so Paul himself stays back. As we continue to follow this uh, protest as they are going along in verse 32 and into uh, the latter portion in verse 34, we see that this protest ends up making its way into the theater of Ephesus. Now, this theater is not like a movie theater. It's an outdoor amphitheater, much like the Hollywood Bowl. If you've ever been to the Hollywood Bowl, I looked it up. It has a capacity of 17,500 seats in it. This theater was larger than that. It had a capacity of about 25,000 seats. So it's about 40% larger than the Hollywood Bowl. This theater is packed with individuals they've all been following from the town sen- town square and they're making their way in there and they're screaming and they're shouting and in these amphitheaters you would have had the town clerk where he worked and you would also have the proconsuls, the government officials there who helped upkeep the laws and the police officers and everyone and so they all march into the theater here and it's just a full-fledged riot at this point in verse 32 it says some are crying out one thing some another the assembly is in total confusion and get this most of them did not even know why they had come together. The total just rebellious, riotous confusion that often exists in the worldly sinful idolatry that comes on display in the life of both these Ephesians and also anyone who is anti-God and what God himself is seeking to do. This is a total, totally chaotic scene here, and so what happens is you know, the, 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 you see these motivations and you, and you see this, uh, this behavior of the world. Well, there are some level-headed individuals in the world who are like, okay, we need to do something about this here because these people are losing their minds. These people are going to regret this. And so what happens is, in verse 33, it says, Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, as we have here, we see this example that, that Artemis, or the, 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 not Artemis, that's the goddess, that uh, they put forward this guy Alexander. He's a Jew not a believing Jew, an unbelieving Jew. And what's happening here is the unbelieving Jews in this society are trying to distance themselves from the church here. They don't want to be included in the riot. They don't want themselves to get lynched. So Alexander stands up at a podium probably much like this. and You know, imagine 25,000 people here, and he's waving his hand, and he's saying, hey guys, I got something to say, got something to say. And finally the people say, okay, this guy wants to talk to us. Let's hear what he's going to say. And they say, wait a second, this guy's a Jew. These Jews also don't believe in the idolatry that we ourselves believe in. We're just going to keep on shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you say, for two hours they screamed this? For two hours, Luke's got to be exaggerating here. Go to any football game. Watch the Super Bowl today. There will be fans screaming for three hours straight, cheering on either the Chiefs or the Eagles who are going to be in the Super Bowl in a little bit later time. It's not hard-pressed for us to see that these people were actually screaming and shouting for two hours this prayer or this chant that they had of great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they become hoarse. They're screaming, shouting, shouting. They are so riotous in their behavior, lacking any sort of control whatsoever. This is totally, totally the behavior of individuals who are worldly. They are individuals who act as fools because they live their lives in total opposition to God. Psalm chapter fourteen, verse one says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. These people show their worldliness in that they are angry, and so they riot. James 1 verse 20, "For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God." Suffice it to say, rioting is antithetical to God and his ways. Rioting shows the worldliness of individuals who seek to enact vengeance on their own rather than leaving vengeance to God, which is alone his to repay. These people are worldly. They are worldly to the extreme. They are riotous in their behavior, and really there's an account. Back in the Old Testament that actually mimics this or, or images this in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, turn there with me because we're going to read a few of the verses here. 1 Kings chapter 18 verse uh, 20 to verse 39 is a narrative about this uh, prophet Elijah who is finding himself in the midst of an idolatrous people who have rejected the God of Israel. And what they're doing is they're worshiping Baal. Uh, Baal was an idol of their day and, and so there was this uh, competition that was put out. This competition was, let's see who God, who the real God actually is. Is it the God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, or is it this Baal that you are worshipping here? And in the contrast between how these uh, Baal prophets summon their Baal god or whomever he is, the contrast between how they summon this Baal god as it pertains to how Elijah calls upon God to do his work amongst the people is totally indicative of the worldliness, uh, a worldly attitude that these prophets of Baal uh, exude and also of what these people in Ephesus are doing. And so I'll read it quickly so you can get the story. It says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am and left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves the bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. We see the contrast here between these two individuals. You have one who is a follower of the Lord and the other who is an idol worshiper. They're cutting themselves. They're beating themselves. Nothing happens. They're riotous. They are totally out of control. Elijah, calm, collected, self-controlled, he goes before and offers this up to God, and we see the results of it. Now then, we have the motivation of worldliness, the activity or the behavior of worldliness, and finally, the solution that the world puts up to try to stop worldliness. The solution, the world says we've got a problem, even the world realizes when it loses control to a certain extent, and they say, we've got to figure out the problem here, we've got to solve it. Well, the solution comes, verse 35 to 41, and we'll try to hurry through this here. It says And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought, not to, do, uh, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, the solution of the world, and I would just say this from the start, the solution of the world is always rooted in the fear of man, not from the fear of God. How do we know this? Well, we see this happening here. The solutions of the world to the sin problem in their world, they may not call it sin, but the problems that they see arising in the world, the solutions of world to worldliness always come from the fear of man. You have this man, the town clerk, he gets up to the podium and he, he quiets the crowd. Now, you know, you may say, the town clerk quiets the crowd? he's just a clerk. Who cares about him? Well, the town clerk in Ephesus had a great amount of authority there. So when he got up to the podium, the people knew that it was time to listen. And so he quiets the crowd here. And what he says will carry weight and will bring about a resolution. Verse 41 tells us the riot itself stopped. You say, how does he restore order? What does he do? What fear of man leads these individuals to restore order? Well, first he suggests to them this. Let's just coexist with Paul's people. Let's just coexist with them. We don't need to argue with them. We can all get along. We're all men. We can all get along here. Let's just coexist, because after all, Paul's people are not against yours. You could just get along. Just coexist here. His argument really is seen from verse 35 to verse 39, which is what I've read already. He says, even with what Paul is doing here in Ephesus, Artemis has not been deposed from her place. People are still worshiping her. People are still buying your shrines, maybe not as much and on top of that, the people that you brought here, Gaius and Aristicus, they have not blasphemed this goddess, nor are they sacrilegious towards her. They're not trying to defame these images. They're not going around sacrilegious means they're breaking the images. They're not doing any of that. So what are you worried about here? Just coexist with them. Let's just all get along. Let's just all get along. And, and better yet, if you can't get along with them, if you try to coexist and you still can't get along, go to the courts. Go to the court system. Make a law against them. Sue them. Get your money back. And it'll all be fine it's fine. Don't worry about this problem any longer. It's, it's this, worldly, this worldly concept. Basically, if you cannot coexist, let the government figure it out. But still, he will have another position that these people can take, another solution to it. If you can't coexist with them, well, the other problem is you're going to get yourself in trouble. The fear of man comes into play again here. If you can't coexist, if you can't take it to the government, your problem, well, what's going to happen is the government is going to arrest you, and they say, oh, we don't want to be arrested here. The fear of man comes into play. You see, if they were truly, truly passionate about this, no amount of government involvement could stop them from doing what they were doing to try to uphold the name of their God. Remember when the uh, government, the Sanhedrin, tried to stop Paul or Peter and them from proclaiming the gospel? They said, you keep claiming the gospel, we're going to arrest you and we're going to put you in prison and we'll probably end up killing you. What Peter and, and them say is, well, well, you can say that, but we're going to serve God, not men. For these people, they say, oh, the government's going to get involved. I don't want to get involved with that. We'll stop here. And so the fear of man prevents these people or, or, or leads these people to, uh, to stop this sinful behavior. As it was, the Roman government hated nothing more than lawlessness. They valued order. Disorder, it was going to be greatly punished. And so we have the town clerk, Who appeals to this? Well, this quiets them right away, and the crowd is dispersed. Now, we must notice this about here, which is critical to understanding the worldliness of these individuals. After all, the problem which they're trying to solve is not just some general issue, it's not just some small problem. This is a sin problem. As we know, worldliness is that which is antithetical to God, His will, and His ways, it's things in which are totally contrary to God. And so this is a sin problem. And the world is trying to solve a sin problem with more sinners. What's going to happen? When you try to solve a problem by a, as a sinner, you're going to create more sin in your life, which is what happens here. When disagreements come, the world says, just let everyone coexist. All paths lead to God or a God. And so let's just let these people do what they're going to do. Those people can do what they're going to do. And that's the fear of man. We don't want a conflict. And so, well, let's just believe what we want and everything will be well. And if we can't coexist, well then, you know, let's just let the government control the sin. Let the government control the sin. And it's true, God has instituted the government to control the sin to a certain extent. But even then, even then, the government cannot solve the problem of sin, nor can they get rid of it in any real sense. And so you say, what is the solution to worldliness? What must happen here for these people to have a change of heart? A true change of heart, because after all, the problem hasn't gone away. Paul' still going to preach the gospel. people are still going to be saved. they're still going to lose their influence. Artemis is not going to be worshipped there much longer. This is going to be a problem that continues. What must happen? What must happen to this sin problem that is pervading the life of these Ephesian individuals? Well, the solution to worldliness can only be solved by God himself. It's a spiritual battle, worldliness. It's not just some physical thing in which we can un- un- undertake and overthrow or control. This is a spiritual battle between God and Satan who are at enmity with one another. And they are, Satan is seeking to disrupt and distort God's will and his ways and to take glory from God. If we are going to solve a worldliness problem, we cannot go to the world to do it because it's just going to create more sin. God himself must take care of the sin problem in this world. And the reality is, is he has done this. God has done this, but the people don't see it. Even though Paul's proclaiming the gospel, their worldliness has blinded them to the truth of the gospel, and they are not they are not willing to succumb to that, and so their solution ends up becoming, well, we're fearful of man. Let's just coexist for a time. If we still don't get along, I can go to the government. The government will take care of it, and even then, I don't want to get arrested, so I'll stop for a time. It's always, it's always, if you want to calm down the world, threaten them, with arrest, or just say, well, we're just all going to get along, and you can bet that they will just be happy as can be. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants people to be just as happy as they can be opposite of God himself, of loving and knowing God himself. And you say, why must we be careful to consider this truth today? Why must we be careful to consider this, this motivation to worldliness, and the also behaviors of worldliness, and the solution to worldliness? Why must we be always uh, recognizing these uh, characteristics in our world? Well, because while we are not of this world, we are still in this world. And the sinful attitudes of the world in which we live pervade every aspect of our society. And if we are not careful, what will begin to happen is the church, as it gives in, as it gives way to, you know, not wanting conflict or, or not wanting to offend or, or not wanting to, you know, get involved with the things that, that the world is doing, the, 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 what's going to happen here is, is the church is going to fall victim to the worldliness that surrounds us. It's going to be swallowed up by the worldliness. The Ephesian church had a large problem here, a greater problem than this riot even, is greater problem than this riot even. Who cares about the riot? They had the problem of worldliness. The world was against them. The world was seeking to swallow them up just as we are here in Hollywood. The worldliness of Hollywood pervades every aspect of our society in which we live. Its motivations, its desires, its activities, its agendas, everything, everything is on full display here. And if we as a church are not careful, If we as a church are not constantly aware of the fact that God has taken us out of this world, though we are yet still in it, and has transferred us into his kingdom of marvelous light, we are going to be overcome by the world in which we are living in. How do I know? How do I know that this should be something that we ought to be aware of here? Well, take the example of the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church here, they win the battle here at this point. They win the battle here. Worldliness does not infect the church. 30 years later, some 30 years later, the worldliness of Ephesus overtook them. Look to what Christ says to them in Revelation chapter 2. He speaks to the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pretty good, right? But this is, this is the problem. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The world had infected this church They no longer were being governed by the love that they had in the first place, but rather they were being governed by the love that they had for the present world. And Christ rebukes them for that. 30 years after this, just 30 years from the inception of this church in Ephesus, and the world almost swallowed it up completely. You look around the city of Hollywood here today, we have about a 120 year history here in Hollywood with churches. You know how many Bible believing churches there are left here in Hollywood? Very, very few. Up the street, the Methodist church has totally replaced the Bible for their own agenda. And you look at other churches and they still, all of these other, many of these other churches here in Hollywood today have totally succumbed to the pressures of this world. Church, we must be on guard against these things. Not for morality's sake, that in and of itself is worldly also. We are to do this for the sake that we would glorify the one who has saved us from this world, from this sin in which so easily entangled us. We are to do this for the sake of magnifying the name of our great God here in the city of Hollywood, not only that His name will be glorified, but also that we would lead others to worship Him through His Son, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, we are to be the light of the world, not uh, the worldly light. We are to be the light of the world. We are not to image the world. We are not to exude worldliness from what we are emanating from our light source. Rather, we are to emanate the light of Jesus Christ who is our Savior. You say, how do I do this? How do I ensure that I do not become caught up with the worldliness of the days in which I am living in? Well, we're going to see in a couple of weeks from the example of the Ephesian church here in this same passage, looking at it from an entirely different standpoint, from the church's standpoint, how the church was able to affect the world in the right way. And as we look at that, we'll see some wonderful, wonderful principles that we can establish in our own life as a church. But until then, What we must also ultimately understand is that it is essentially this. If we wish to live according to our position as those who are light in the world, not of the world, we must do all things to the glory of God. Everything we do, whatever we do, I don't care what it is that you're doing, everything that you do must be done to the glory of God. Why? Because worldliness is all that is which is antithetical to God. And so if you do all things to the glory of God, you have nothing to worry about. Nothing at all to worry about if you live your life to the glory of God. Yet, always be concerned that there are many who have confessed to be concerned to do all to the glory of God and yet are found to use this as a stepping stone for their own agenda. Church, may it never be for us that that we just say we want to glorify God. May it be that we are seeking to glorify God in all that we do. May each of us have our heart's desire be to follow Jesus in all that we do, to look to Him only as the author and perfecter of our faith, our great high priest who we can turn to, to always receive mercy and grace in our times of great need and temptations to worldliness. Church, may it be to God alone who we give all glory, honor, and praise to, who has brought us out of this dark world and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day that we have to be able to come and consider your word. God, I thank you that we are able to do so with this freedom, Lord without even considering if someone might come in and try to stop us from proclaiming your word or, or worrying what people might think about us, God, because we know that you are with us always. God, we know that no matter what may come against us in this world in which we are living in, we need not be afraid because you, God, have overcome the world. As you sent your son, Jesus Christ, he overcame the world. He is our righteousness. He is the one in whom has defeated the powers of sin. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated death itself. God, if we wish to be a church that is not uh, falling victim to the aspects of worldliness in which we are living in, God, may we continually look to our great and wonderful Savior. May we cherish him. May we seek him first. May we consider him always. God, would you lead us lead us to always look to your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray these things, amen.